Hello, this is Pastor Galen from the First Nazarene Church in Chicago, and welcome to our podcast. Hey, before we hear the message today, I simply wanted to say that no matter where you're at, we're glad that you're listening today. We hope this message will inspire you, instruct you, and help you grow in your relationship with Jesus. And if you live in the Chicagoland area, maybe this is the first step for you joining us in person sometime. Or if you want to, you can always check out our online live services every Sunday on our website at firstnaz.cc. Thanks again for joining us. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning and welcome into First Nazarene Church. Thank you so much uh, for choosing to be with us for church today. Uh, whether you are here every single week, and it is always good to see your smiling faces as you come through the door, uh, or whether you may be newer to our church, I've uh, been coming for a few weeks, or maybe today is your very first time with us, just a special welcome to you. Thank you for choosing uh, to be here at church today. And if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Galen. I'm the pastor here. Uh, I would love to meet you after a service down front or in the lobby sometime get to know a little bit of you and your story. And I hope uh, if you, especially if you're new to our church today, but always, uh, that when you come here, what you encounter in this church is not a holy huddle of perfect people who all have their lives together, uh, but instead people who are willing to admit, hey, I do fall short, but I want to know this Jesus. If God created me and Jesus is the picture of God, I want to know more about him. I want to explore my faith and grow in my faith. And as you do that, I hope you also encounter the love of God's community, the church. Uh, whether it's through life groups, whether through it's things like yesterday, many of you were at the women's ministry event, uh, that you find this, this church is willing to partner with you through all aspects of life. So again, uh, thank you for being a, here today and a part of our church. Today we'll continue our little Fixer Upper series. If you missed last week, uh, we began a new series as we head towards Easter together and what the church calls the season of Lent. Uh, it's a little bit more these five, six weeks. It's more introspective type work of, um, for us, the metaphor of a fixer-upper. God, how would you want to renovate my heart? What is it that you would want to change on me on the inside um, that would fix my heart, make me the kind of person that you would want me to be? We recognize that we are all God's fixer-upper project. Uh, let, me, let me just ask you by way of starting uh, today. I know online our pre-service host asked you, you know, would you rather have a fixer-upper house or a kind of a turnkey, it's just done uh, kind of house? Let me ask you a different question now. Um, what is the area of your home that you would most love to renovate? And husbands, I, I will apologize. If this sparks a conversation at home and you have to work for the next four months, I'm so sorry. That was not what this was intended to be. Uh, but what was the area of your home that you would most love to redo, to renovate? Uh, maybe for you, and I don't even know if this fits in the category of renovation, but paint goes a long way. Maybe you love to paint. My wife does not love to paint, but she loves to say we should paint that. And by we, we mean a strong you um, should paint that, and it would look so much better. Maybe for you, it's... Um, Removing a wall to open up some space. You have watched every episode of Chip and Joanna, and they say that, and just remove this wall, and there's so much more open space. Uh, maybe you'd want to do that in your home, um, or whatever it may be. Maybe an outside seating area as we, you know, get through the first few false springs, and then it continues to snow, and then it's actually spring and summer. Like, if you redo that space, it will make a huge difference in your home. What are the areas that you love to do? But then also on the other side of it, what are the areas of your home you l most hate, you loathe 
you don't want to renovate them. Uh, for me, that area, no matter every house we've lived in, is always the basement. Uh, I don't like the basement. It turns into the place, and forgive me and if you're better than me, but for most people, kind of the place where you just shove stuff when you're like, oh, where do we put it? We'll get to it next year or whatever. You put it down there, and you're like, oh, but I know we need to do stuff. It's unseen. It gets unaddressed. Sometimes it can get dusty. I don't want to actually redo this. It's not going to make that big of a difference. Uh, until, like my wife and I at our last house in uh, Bolingbrook, one summer, the short story is, got really cold, pipes froze, the water backed up into our house, shot into our basement, sprayed all over the HVAC system, completely destroyed it, and it was like, oh, if we had money to renovate our house, oh, sweet, let's go to the basement and do the HVAC. I don't want to do it, but we need to do it. And today, as we think about this fixer-upper series, I would actually say the topic that Jesus teaches on and that we're addressing is probably more of a basement kind of fixer-upper. It's the area of our life, of our house, if you will, that we probably least want to renovate. Uh, it goes unaddressed. Nobody sees it. It's probably a little dirty or messy. You haven't addressed it yet because, honestly, you don't want to. We're continuing from Matthew 5, so if you have your Bible and you want to open it, we'll go there in just a second. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week when Jesus was talking about anger. You can always go back and watch our messages. We're going to continue on with his teaching. Jesus commands and teaches us these words, Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye... Even your good eye causes you to lust. Gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Again, if you were here last week, I told you in the Sermon of the Mount, fair warning, Jesus' teachings are hard, and it is gut level, and they're difficult things, and like, do we really have to talk about that? And Jesus, if this is true, how can any of us live the kind of life that you want us to live? And I understand, let me just say this up front, I understand this is a subject, adultery, lust, that often we never talk about in the world. You don't just go grab coffee and like, hey, let's talk about it. Um, and often it's not talked about in the church either. Yet I hope what you'll see today that it, it may be more relevant, more prominent in our culture than we normally think of. And so I think it is important for us as a church. First of all, if Jesus talked about it and taught on it, if we are his church, I believe we should do the same thing. But it also may be more relevant for us today than we first might think. And if some of you are like, hey, that's Galen, that's great. That's what the church needs to hear. I don't particularly struggle with that specific area of sin. So I guess today's not for me. You know, I'll just come back next week. I'd say, listen, I still think there is value for you today. Number one, if you don't struggle with this area, maybe you would begin to pray for the other people in the church. When we come to church, it's not just for us and what we can receive and what do I get out of it. But you would support and partner with the church by praying for others, maybe, today. But secondly, I would see, I want you to see the principles behind sin or a holy life. Well, God says, don't engage in these things, but do engage in these things, because the principles are true of almost every area of sin in our life. Let me also just address, hey, if you're new today, you're like, today is my first Sunday, and this is the message? Um, wonderful. I say this to you. Hang with me. Number one, I first of all, I hope you recognize our willingness as a church 
to not just pass over things. Like, no one's forcing me to preach this. I could have easily moved on. But if Jesus said it, I think you would recognize, hey, this is a church that's willing to grapple with what Jesus had to say and try to live our lives accordingly. And secondly, again, that you might find something from today. Because I believe when God's church gathers, the Holy Spirit is here. Even if it's not on the theme or the preacher's talk for that day, God can do a work in your life if you're open to hear it. And finally, I also understand today that some of you may have kids in the room with you. Maybe you're not comfortable yet to uh, send them back to our children's ministry. In order to let you know, uh, just because you probably didn't know what the topic was today, uh, in just a moment, I'm going to pray for us. And as I do, if you want to, if you want to slip out of the room with your kids, there's a little play area for them in the lobby. This is on the TV in the lobby. Uh, You could listen there. You could listen later this week. You're like, I didn't come prepared to have that conversation with my six-year-old mommy. What does that word mean, right? And so if you want to, in just a moment, you can feel free to slip out. We want to give you the space to do that. As we engage with this topic today, would you bow your heads and pray with me and ask Jesus for wisdom? God, as we approach your words today, Just as you spoke to people back then, would you speak to us today through your Holy Spirit? Give us the courage to address things, the basement kind of things in our life that we need to. And God, no matter what is said today from the stage, would you be the one who does a work in our life, even if it's not around the topic, around anything that you would want to do a work in our life? Speak to us today. We're listening to you. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. So let's look at these verses. Let's look at what Jesus had to say for us together. And Jesus says these words, listen, if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, he says, gouge it out and throw it away. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. First of all, we have to address, did Jesus really mean this? Like literally, Jesus, this seems a little drastic, right? So, okay, all right, here's what we're going to do today. Fix her upper series. Let me see what we've got back here. Um, I believe this, I'm not a construction guy, I think this is called a hacksaw. All right, Jesus said, um, today, who needs to lose a hand? Here's how we're going to respond to the message today. Is this what Jesus means? Is this what he means? First of all, I'm going to put this down before I hurt myself. What is he getting at? What does he actually mean? Does he literally, physically want us to do these things? I think obviously most of us realize the answer is no, and even when we want to approach Scripture with a literal interpretation, we always come with the lens of uh, our own interpretation. We need to see if that's truly what Jesus meant or not. So what did Jesus mean? First of all, let me just say this. Jesus is not advocating for any kind of self-harm. That would go contrary to the belief of what you see all throughout Scripture that God created you. He knits you together in your mother's womb. He looks at the physical body and calls it good. Jesus is never advocating for any kind of self-harm. That is not what is going on here. So what is it that he means? What is it the heart that he's trying to get here? And I think even if Jesus isn't literally saying this, we should not miss the point. Sometimes we tolerate sins in our life I know I really shouldn't live that way, but it it stays reoccurring over and over, and we begin to tolerate it in our life, and in a way, if it goes unchecked, it will eventually destroy us. I think what Jesus is saying is it's better to experience the pain of removal in the present than to get to an eventual separation from God in eternity. There may be a pain of embarrassment or I actually have to go talk with somebody or meet with a counselor and I actually have to address it. It is painful. Be saying, isn't it better to experience that kind of pain than to be separated from God with ever, forever? 
Jesus calls us to not tolerate anything in our lives that would make room for impurity, the absence of love, or the misdirections of love. Jesus says, do not give the devil a foothold. Don't give him space to work in your life. Remove it. Jesus is saying also, is this an eye problem? Is this a hand problem? It's a heart problem. Cut out your eye, cut out your hand. What is he saying? Cut out your heart? Well, no. But in some sense, yes. When you look at the entirety of Scripture, God has created as good. He's created us to live in a perfect, loving relationship with him. We love him. We love others. We take care of creation. We steward it well as he has called us to do. But just as Adam and Eve back then, and we can't just blame them. Oh, dang it, Eve, look what you did. Now we all have to deal with this. The story's a microcosm of all of humanity. This is our story, too. Every one of us has turned our back on God and instead chosen what we want for ourselves because we know what's best, and so we're going to disobey God and live apart from how he would want us to live because we know best. And when we do that, when we sin, when we live outside of what God would want for us, chaos and destruction and eventually death enter into the world. And so we know that today, even from a physical sense, we one day will all die. But even in the spiritual sense before then, the sin in my life has caused this deadness within me, this lack of fulfillment, this lack of peace or joy. It's contrast to the abundant kind of life that Jesus describes. We can sense it and we know it. God, knowing that we cannot help ourselves, sends his son, Jesus, to go to the cross, to take on all of our sin, our guilt, and our shame, and to have it hung on the cross and be carried into the grave so that even our sin would be done away with and die, and that Jesus would be raised to new life so we receive the forgiveness of sin and the new life just as Jesus has new life. We experience the new life of God as well. It's the picture of baptism. I believe in Jesus. I'm dying to myself. I'm dying to my sin. I'm dying to this old way of life. I'm now being raised to live in God's way of life with a new heart and a new life, a renewed heart. So when Adam and Eve sin, this original sin enters into the world where our heart's disposition is to choose. It's the heart turning in on itself. I want to choose me. And I'm going to look at God, I'm going to look at others, and I'm going to look out for number one. I'm going to choose what's best for me. And instead, the longer that you walk with Jesus, when you completely surrender your life to him, God's grace comes into your heart and turns that disposition towards God. Where you can truly begin to live your life, not choosing selfishly, but to love God and to love others and there experience new life. We need a renewed heart that is able to love God and love others. The heart of Jesus' teaching is about faithfulness. He begins by saying, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed that adultery with her in his heart. I told you last week in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus keeps saying this phrase, you have heard it was said. So today he's referencing the seventh commandment from Exodus. It is the law, you shall not commit adultery. Then he says, even if you look with lust, This Greek word that he uses would be translated the same way from the 10th commandment. You should not covet. You should not covet what your neighbor has. And this, for me, is interesting. So if this is a desire of the heart, and this isn't uh, even, so let's say you don't struggle with lust today. Is there other areas of your life where you look at something that somebody has and you want it? You covet it. You're envious of it. I want that for me. And that is what it is that the heart here. 
It's not just about looking at a uh, lust with a woman. It's looking at anything else that anyone else has and saying, I want that for me. Lust, even as the uh, uh, dictionary defines it, is a passionate desire for something. I want that in my life. Psychology Today lists the top six things that we envy or we covet from other people. When we look at our neighbors, we say, I want that for me. What we desire, we want what they have because we don't have it. Any guesses today on what might make that top six list? Anybody want to guess? A house? Who said money? Money is number one. We look at our neighbors. Man, if I had that, I have a desire to have what they have. Maybe it comes out in their house or their car. Relationship status is number two. I want what they have. Number three is children. Number four is physical attractiveness. Number five is weight. Number six is professional success. So even if it's not the area of lust, how often do we look at our neighbor and say, if I had that car, I have a passionate desire for it, and I somehow believe the lie. If I had it, then I would be happy. Man, I look at that awesome car, and it's got the special kit, and it's blacked out. If I had that, then I'd be happy. The 10th commandment, what if we look at our neighbor's house, car, their life, maybe in this case, their wife, and say, if I had that, are we desiring these things? But I want you to see this. Hold that thought in contrast. What is the greatest commandment? What does Jesus tell us of how we should live our life? Hopefully you know this. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and your mind is strength. The second is like it or equally as important. What's it say? Love your neighbor as yourself. Hold these two things in contrast. Jesus says you're to love your neighbor as you love yourself. In one sense, love your neighbor as God loves them. What are we doing when we're coveting? We're saying, ah, this person has now become an object to serve me. I don't view them as God views them. I view it for what's in it for me. What God desires is to do the change in our heart. Say to not look at everything else and want something more, but instead to look to God and want what God wants. And that changes how I view others and maybe even what they have. This is the transformation God wants to do in our heart. Because Jesus is specifically talking in this passage about lusting after a person instead of other desires, I think we do need to spend a few quiet moments today and share how do we live with freedom from this, God's freedom in this area of our lives. You see, all sin takes a good thing and distorts it. What if God gives us the gift of love and especially love within the relationship of a marriage. He says, I've given you this beautiful thing that is supposed to be used in the safety and the covenant of marriage for life together. And in that relationship, to love one another as Jesus loved the church. To selflessly give up your rights and what you want and your way of thinking to serve the other. And if one partner is doing that and the second partner is doing that as well, then both of them don't have to live with like, well, what about me? Because the other person's looking out for their needs as they look out for the needs of the other person. It's this beautiful picture of what marriage could be and should be. Lust takes the truth of the goodness of what God has given us and turns it into a lie. It's the illusion of love, the illusion of love. It takes another person and instead dehumanizes them as the image-bearing, unique gift of God that God has made to that person dehumanizes them and turns them into an object that is to be used for my own desire. It's a lie, an illusion of love. What we need is a heart that views others as God views them. 
Some of you are like, Galen, why are we talking about this today? I feel awkward. You probably feel awkward up there too. Why are we doing this? Even if you don't struggle, I want you to see these principles are true in other areas. And yet today, four out of every ten women watch pornography. Seven out of every ten men watch pornography. One out of five Google searches is for pornography. Even if you're not yet a Christian or, I think pornography's fine, I challenge you, go and do the research. It shows, it correlates, first of all, with unrealistic expectations with your spouse. It actually leads to decreased satisfaction, a lack of positive self-image, and increased chances of divorce. Neurologically in your brain, it is rewriting your brain in the same way as someone who uses cocaine and rewrites it in such a way that you can only find pleasure or a sense of intimacy or connection with a screen instead of the person that God has given you to faithfully love your entire life. The reason why I think it's so prevalent in our society today is because it feels like a hidden thing. You know, if I struggle with outbursts of anger or drunkenness, everybody around me knows it. But this, we can engage with this and just clear the search history, right? And nobody knows. But can you wipe and clear the search history in the same way in your soul or what it's doing to your brain? The answer is no. And the fixer-upper idea and metaphor, I think the deadly sin of lust is equivalent to termites. Termites are known as the silent destroyers. Honestly, as I was looking for a picture of termites, um, I got off Google in like 60 seconds because they grossed me out. They look weird. They're small. I think about what they do to a home. It's nasty. They're known as the silent destroyers because of their ability to chew through wood, flooring, even wallpaper undetected. Each year, they cause more than $5 billion in damage, and your homeowner's insurance does not cover it. It is silent. It is invisible, and it undermines the foundation of a home. Lust often in our life, silent, deadly, undermines the foundation of our relationships, our intimacy, or even our marriage. And hear me today, as a pastor, my goal today is not to shame you. Oh, look what you've done, how terrible it is. Can I just tell you, this was a struggle in my life for years. The goal is not to say, look how bad you were. The goal today, can you begin to picture a life of freedom? What if you didn't have to cycle in the cycle of shame? Oh, I did it again. I'm terrible. I'm trying to quit. I can't. I'm never going to get past this. What if you didn't have to feel the guilt and the sense of hiding? What if they find out? Oh, man, I don't want to have that conversation. What if they find out? What if instead you could experience the freedom from guilt and shame and find wholeness and integrity? I don't longer struggle with that. God has given me a new heart. I can now view people as I should view them. God is doing a new work. In my life, I hope you hear my heart today is not to shame, but to find freedom. I think the best picture for this, scripturally, biblically speaking, is I think of David. If lust is like termites, eating at the foundation of our relationships, think of his life. David one day walks out onto a ledge. He looks down, and he shouldn't even be there, by the way. He is in a space that he should not be. And he looks down, and there's a woman bathing. Now David could have walked back inside, whoa, she should, I should not be watching, what is she doing out there? But he entertains a thought. And as he does, because he is king, his wish is literally someone's command. He says, bring her to me. So she comes to him, he sleeps with her, she becomes pregnant. 
Now this sin of lust has now taken on a whole different thing in his life. Often our sin grows more than we ever think it will. When we're confronted with it, we have the option to own up to it and address it, to cut it out of our life, or to cover up. When we cover up, it will always get worse. David decides to cover it up. For him, what that meant, she was a married woman. I think the way I'll cover it up is to have him come home from war, and when all that doesn't work, he commands the murder of her husband. His lust has led into murder, the lust into adultery, and then to murder. But does God leave him there? Is the point to shame? Does God show up in a cloud and just strike him dead? Look what you've done. Isn't that how we view how God looks at us sometimes? God sends a man of God with the word of God to creatively tell this beautiful story to say, listen, what you're doing is wrong, but now you have an opportunity to respond. What if we, like David, while there was still time to respond, could choose to respond? Again, I'm I'm convinced that wasn't the first time in his life where he could own up to it, he could address it instead of cover it up, and he does. He says, I am that man. He is reconciled to God. God does not save him from the consequences, and he often doesn't. We need to learn. But he is saved and forgiven and reconciled to God. To, To this day, we know David is the man after God's own heart. He's an adulterer and a murderer, and that's his nickname, which tells me, and do not miss this, what if our stance with God had less to do with our past and the mistakes and the worst moments of our life and more to do with where we stand today and the disposition and the direction of the way that we are moving. Instead of saying, well, God must not love me because of all of these things, take David's story. When he confessed, he turned and ran towards God, and what did he find? Forgiveness, mercy, compassion. The same is true for us today. Most clear scripture, Ephesians 4, says this, with the authority of the Lord, I say this to you, Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused, as people that do not know God. Their minds are full of darkness, for they wander far from the life that God gives, because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against them. They have no sense of shame. So they live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But, but that is not what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on this new nature. It requires active participation by us, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. You once lived this way, but Jesus had died, and in your baptism you die with him, and now you live a new life. So throw off those ways of living. Begin to put on the new self of how God would want us to live, and God recognizes you can't do it on your own. He says, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Let him change you. Today, very practically, if you struggle with this, or if you don't, but you would later find out that someone does, maybe you'd share this with him for the practical side. What are the consistent practices to overcome this sin in your life? First of all, in the moment, and then later ongoing. In the moment where there is a moment of lust that happens, pray for that person. And I know that sounds weird. The the person who taught me this, and it truly helped change my perspective of people, 
uh, was my college RA, the guy that was in charge of the hall. Uh, his name was Brandon Smith. Everybody called him B. Smith. Uh, he was on the football team. He was a defensive tackle. He was a large, scary man. Uh, and then when I found out he loved Jesus and was like vulnerable yet strong, and he became for me this picture of what Christian manhood should look like. Uh, we built an incredible relationship as I learned to follow Jesus. And I was like, listen, man, I'm struggling with this in my life. How do I overcome this? And he taught me two great things. First one is this. When you look, and as a man, I'll use the example, when I look and see a woman and notice that she's beautiful, that is not a sin. We say, God, you have created beautiful things. Thank you. And you move on. When you look back a second time, it's not the first look, the second look. You begin to entertain thoughts, just like David, where he wasn't supposed to be, and he lingered. That's, this is where it turns sinful. Don't look the second time, was what he taught me. And then secondly, when you notice in a moment, oh, what am I doing? Pray for that person. I said, B. Smith, that's weird. If I'm in that moment thinking those thoughts, I can't pray for someone, because you need to. And little, neither one of us knew this. Even neuro neurologically, if you are looking at someone, you're teaching your brain how to think about people. If instead you correct that behavior and then begin to wish the best for them. God, would you bless them? Would you bless them right now? Would you bless their future family? I know what you want, what's best for them. They are a child of God. Bless them. You're teaching your brain to think about people differently. The advice that he gave me helped me so much. Secondly, not only pray for that person, Scripture tells you what do you do in the moment? Run. Flee, it says, 2 Corinthians. Flee from sexual immorality. Run away. You know, there's times in Scripture it says, stand firm. Fight the fight. Knock down arguments with reason and stand firm. In terms of sexual immorality, run. Why? You see the Genesis 39? It's Joseph's story. Joseph um, is an attractive, smart, intelligent man. Another man's wife grabs him by the shoulders, grabs him by the coat, and says, come to bed with me. Now, what if Joseph is like, well, you know, I'm going to stand firm and fight. The longer we stay in a moment, we can self-justify about anything, can't we? Well, maybe, and like, well, I mean, yeah. And what does Joseph do? Boom! Runs out the door to the fact that she's still got his coat and hand. We should run. 2 Corinthians 2, 22, which we'll get to in just a moment, I think gives us a picture of what this looks like. And even if lust is not your area of sin that you fall into, I would Im invite you to picture what that area may be. I want to give you maybe a helpful picture of what this could look like. Maybe you can see this. There's a line on the ground right here. God calls us to live. We'll call it over here. In godly ways, to live for him, to serve him. To, he asks us to do certain things, to live Christian life of ethic and virtue and become more like Jesus. On the other side are the things that we know we should not be doing, the things that in the Bible we read is sin, and that's over here. How many of us are like, all right, God, I want to live as you want me to live? Okay. And some of us, and not anything bad about us, but we're like, yeah, I'm going to be over here, but like, I don't need to be like all the way over there, right? Like, I can like be right here, right next to the line, and like, maybe I can, woohoo, it's pretty close. Be right next to you. And actually, if I, if I get my tippy toes right here, I think, uh, I'm not over. Please don't push me. Like, I'm not over the line, but we're facing this way. If we live like this, and I ask you the question I did last week, what we're failing to believe is that what God wants for us, as St. Ignatius of Loyola said, is our truest happiness. 
We think, well, God, how much can I live for you? But I kind of want what I want. I think this is going to make me happy. So I like, I might like dabble a little bit over here. God wants the best for us. Do we trust him in that? When he says live in these ways, and I, even if I don't understand it, God, you want what's best for me? Okay. I'd also say notice the direction. Because if, oh, we're on this side, but I am facing this way. Especially in the area of sexual immorality, it says run. Which direction do you run? This way. I want you to see this from 2 Timothy 2.22. Speaking of these things, it begins and it says, run. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Instead, this for me is the direction you run. Pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Pursue the things of God. And then it says, I love this, enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. Young people are others who are single that want to be married, and you're close to the line, and I want to, and ah, I, I want this in my life. God says, run this way. Run. And when you find somebody else who's running with you, enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord. Don't try to pull them with you. Run this way. And if you find someone running that way with you, then run with them. Run from these things, and don't get caught in the moment. This is what we do in the moment. What do we do ongoing in our life? Today, commit. Commit. I will be a person who will overcome this struggle in my life. Job 31.1, if you want to make that your prayer every day, Job 31.1 reads, I have made a covenant with my eyes to not look with lust at a young woman. Commit and pray. God, if I can't change this on myself, would your spirit change this within me? Secondly, ongoing practice, weekly, honest accountability. Yes, there are tools out there, website blockers, all these things, but the issue is not, frankly, we're smart enough, we can figure out ways around things. The issue is a heart thing. I think often looking into the eyes of someone who knows you well and asking the question, how'd you do this week? And if you lie to them, they know you well enough to say, stop it, don't lie. And having that kind of accountability. For James says, confess your sins to one another. Why? So that you will be healed. Today as we end, um, not just with this specific sin, but I invite you to think of the sin that you most easily fall into. Is it gossip? Slander? Drunkenness? Lies? Stealing? Greed? I want you to see how it works in our life and how it leads us away. I'm going to walk you through these four verses. First of all, from James chapter 1, it says this. Temptation comes from our own desires. This is our heart wanting something else, which entice us, what if I had it, and drag us away into isolation, I would add, most of the time. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when the sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death in our life. We think we can get away with it because nobody else knows. It's, it's, uh, nobody knows, right? It's isolated. But then we read these haunting words from Luke. Luke writes, For all that is secret will eventually be brought into the open, and everything that is concealed will be brought into the light and be made known to all. When I read that verse, I would say, shoot, if everyone's going to know everything, and eventually anyway, I would choose now to, like Jesus said, go through the pain of removing it in my life. Now, I'm going to drag it into the light now while I still have time to respond to Jesus versus one day getting before heaven and everyone I love and everything being brought to light. Maybe the time to deal with it 
is now. Again, this is a heart problem. I want you to see this from Joel. So what's our response? This is what the Lord says then. Turn to me now while there is still time. Give me your hearts and come with fasting and weeping and mourning. God, I'm so sorry. I've desired these things. It's given birth to death in my life. Take my heart. And then what does he do with it? Those words from Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove from your heart of stone, this hard-heartedness, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you, I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What if we, as God's people, this Lenten season fixer-upper, God, what I need to be fixed most is my heart. Change my desires. Change what I want. God, help me to live for you. Do it. You do it, because I can't do it myself. Put a new heart within me and teach me how to live for you. Today, we'll respond all together as a church, just as we did last week, and we will throughout this entire series. I've built in time and space into our service. Honestly, and I truly believe this, what most of you need is not another thought from Pastor Galen. What you need to do is to go and seek God. Talk to him and respond to him. He is the one who can change your life anyway. If it is helpful for you, we have response stations around the room. There's two up front. There's two on the sides if you want to slip out there, and one in the balcony in the center behind. At these stations, you'll find different ways to respond. Maybe you want to light a candle to pray for someone else. God, this isn't my area, this issue today, but I wonder if somebody in my life, if this is their issue. Either way, I'm going to pray for them. As you light it, God, would you help them? Maybe as you light the candle today, the person you're praying for is you. Maybe you would come to response station and you would pick up communion. You would look at the cross. You'd be reminded of how much God loved you, that while you were still sinner, Christ died for you knowing all that you would do in your life that would separate you from him. He says, I will not live separate from you. I'm coming. I will die for your sin. I will be raised to new life to give you new life. You would receive communion and remember, God's body and blood was shed for me. He was raised to give me new life and the forgiveness of sin. We would receive communion and remember his forgiveness. Maybe on those tables you'll see a space for confession. There's a paper where you can write your confession on the paper, and then put it into the water and stir it and watch what God does with your sin as you confess. To be very clear today, some of you may respond to the message, most of you may not. As you respond at a table, it will be with whatever God is working on your heart with today. Even if it's not at a table, stay in your seats, pray, use this time to talk with God. Come to an altar and pray and say, God, my life is yours. However you need to respond to God today, I would invite you to use this time to do it. Let's pray together. Jesus, we're thankful for your words that are challenging. Ultimately, we trust that you want what is best for us. For some of us, help us to go through the pain of removal of something in our life now so that we can step into freedom and step in the life that you have for us, a life that is full of love for you and love for others. Holy Spirit, in just a moment, would you, as you are already here and speaking, continue to speak to us. Help us to respond to you today in whatever ways that we need to, for ourselves, for others. Help us to use this time with you today.
We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for joining us for the First Naz podcast. If you're interested in what your next step in growing your relationship with God might look like, I'd encourage you to visit us at firstnaz.cc engage, or you can download our app from the App Store, First Nazarene Church. And there you can let us know if you've made a decision for Jesus, or you can also find practical resources to help you grow closer to Jesus. I'd also invite you to subscribe to the podcast if you're not already to make sure that you've always got the latest content. And if you want to, feel free to share this on your social accounts. You never know who else might need to hear today's message as well. Well, thanks again for joining us. Have a great day.